I want to begin with a, kind of a funny picture. So let's cue that up on the PowerPoint. Um, it's a picture about pastoring and different expectations. So in one frame, what my friends think I do, I'm playing golf all day long. In the middle top frame, what my mom thinks I do, standing on a street corner, the end is near, like preaching. Maybe it depends on what your mom is like, right? That's not my mom, but <laughs> what society thinks I do. Maybe I'm raking in the money off of innocent parishioners and congregation members, right? What my congregation thinks I do, no comment. <laughs> what I think I do, I'm Moses, the great prophet leader, right? Leading his people out of Egypt. What I really do, a man in a suit and tie cleaning the toilet. <laughs> well... I think it's kind of a silly, silly picture, a silly graphic, but it, it kind of, uh, there's some truth in it in that it, it, there's so many different expectations of, of what pastors do today in our society from our, our friends to our, 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 our neighbors to uh, our family and even our church. So in this next uh, few sermons, these next few weeks, I'd like to share with you um, some of the, d- the deep core values that are at my heart and help you maybe to understand or to, to know what to expect from me as a pastor and also as a believer, a brother in Jesus Christ. So I want to share with you some of the core key moments in my life, with my Christian journey, that I feel have really formed me. And more than just my own journey, also have helped me to form what I believe are really, really key, important values um, that, that inform where I'm coming from as a pastor and also as a person, as a believer in Jesus. It's kind of like how Granville has articulated its core values as valuing prayer, a people who call on God continually, individually, and corporately, uh, as people who value people, uh, that we're all made in the image of God, that that Granville values grace, extending welcome and kindness to all people in, in our brokenness and mutual transformation in Christ, valuing generosity and self-giving in, in our resources, in our time, in our finances, and also valuing engagement, intentionally participating in God's kingdom and what he's doing here. So some of these, um, what I'm about to share in these next few weeks, really come at the core or at the core of what I believe uh, ought to be part of the Christian life. And I really, I'm so grateful that uh, as Granville articulated its core values in that Sunday when I was here back in June, I go, wow, I really resonate with that. And I want to share with you some of what I feel are are my uh, key values. So I kind of summarize this in A, B, C, D, E. Uh, three or maybe five life lessons. I'm going to talk about three of them in the next three weeks. So authenticity and truth, community and love, and then discipleship and growth. Uh, Number two and number five, I kind of bracket out in these next few weeks because I'm going to talk about them in coming months. Uh, So the Bible is God's word. I'm going to come back to that in the uh, series on ancient words, which we are going to have in October. And then number five, the evangel, or also known as AKA the gospel and mission. So that's really key and core too. And in fact, we're gonna take a whole series on that in January in the coming year. But these next few weeks, authenticity and truth, community and love, discipleship and growth, 
growth, three kind of life lessons that I feel um, have formed me. And today, in fact, I'll be sharing what I feel probably is the most important spiritual lesson that I've learned in my Christian journey up to this time. The most important spiritual lesson that I've learned in my Christian journey. And actually, that doesn't come from my getting to know Jesus initially as uh, becoming a Christian. And it doesn't actually come from my being feel, feeling called to pastoral ministry. It comes actually subsequent to both of those times and periods in my life, something after that, which I'll share with you in the course of this message. But today we're going to talk about authenticity and truth, and our main passage is from John chapter 4, which Heather read out to us, but I will also be looking at John chapter 3. And I want to start with this uh, definition, or with with a definition of what is authenticity, and here's a dictionary definition from Webster's, having that quality so as to be true to one's own personality, spirit, or character, for example is sincere and authentic with no pretensions. That's not a bad definition, right? Having that quality so as to be true to one's own personality, spirit, or character, for example, is sincere and authentic with no pretensions. Now, I want to improve on it for our purposes today and for the purposes of uh, my message um, with this, my definition. Being aware of our deep need of God, we seek to relate to God and to each other with honesty and humility. So I'll read that once more. Being aware of our deep need of God, we seek to relate to God and to each other with honesty and humility. So I want you to keep that definition in the back of your minds as we turn to Scripture. As I mentioned, we're going to be looking at John chapter 4 and John chapter 3. John chapter 4 is the story of the Samaritan woman, and John chapter 3 is the story of Nicodemus. And really, in the Gospel of John, these two stories, as a whole narrative, are meant to be read together. Sometimes we pull them apart and we look at them separately, but really, in the flow of the narrative of the Gospel of John, they're really intended to be contrasted and compared with these two characters, the Samaritan woman and the story of Nicodemus, the character of Nicodemus. And we're going to do a little bit of that today. We're going to focus especially on John chapter 4 and the Samaritan woman, but I will refer also to the character of Nicodemus and how that unfolds in the Gospel of John. Okay, so let's look at the story of the Samaritan woman. Well, we all know this story. The story goes something like this. Jesus is traveling from down south to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, in the south of Palestine. He's going up north towards Galilee, which is where he did primarily most of his ministry. And in between this region in the south, Judea and Galilee up in the north, is this region, which is in the green there, called Samaria. Now, most orthodox, traditional Jewish men, which is what Jesus was, would have gone around Samaria to go to Galilee. It's kind of like if you were um, living in Vancouver and you want to go to Langley. Well, the shortest distance is to go through Surrey, but maybe for some reason you don't want to go through Surrey. 
and you want to take the highway instead. So you go around it. So it's kind of like that. Most Jewish men, because of the reputation of Samaria, because of the people that lived in Samaria, the Samaritans, they believed that Samaritans were unclean religiously. They were impure because of their history and because of their intermingling and intermarriage with the peoples uh, in that location when Jewish people moved into that region, they would go around Samaria in order to continue to be religiously clean and pure. But Jesus decides to go through Samaria. And he comes to a place called Sikar, and there is a well there, and his disciples travel a few kilometers to the town, and he sits at the well, and a, a woman comes up to him, and she's drawing water from this well, and it's, it's the sixth hour, which means it's about noon. And he meets this woman, and he gets into this conversation with her. But you have to understand that there are actually some huge barriers between Jesus and this woman. This is not just a regular conversation, not just a regular encounter that Jesus has with this woman. First of all, there is a cultural barrier, which I had mentioned just now. He is a Jewish man. She is a Samaritan woman. Jewish people and Samaritan people, they do not mix. They do not intermingle. They do not interact because of these religious, traditional, historical reasons that they just did not really get along. Even though they were, you could say that they were kind of cousins ethnically, there's this kind of rivalry and even bitterness about their relationship. So Jewish people and Samaritan people do not get along. Jewish people, in fact, feel that Samaritans were unclean. Second is the gender barrier. So in that tradition, in that era, it's a very, very conservative culture. A man would not approach a woman on their own and speak to them on their own in this place like that. They would not be found alone speaking to each other because of uh, perceived impropriety, just because of very traditional culture and perhaps a, even a perception of immorality. So that's why it says that when his disciples came and saw him speaking to a woman, they were surprised because typically in that culture, in that day, uh, men do not approach women and speak to them on their own like that, even in a public place. And thirdly is this personal moral barrier. So we're kind of reading into the story a little bit, the beginning of the story, but as it unfolds, it's confirmed our suspicions because a woman coming to a well in the middle of the day in Palestine is not a typical thing to be seen. This is hot. This is the middle of the day. First of all, a woman will not be traveling alone. Second of all, a woman would not be traveling at noon to go to the well in order to draw water and then walk kilometers back with these heavy loads of water back to her town. Normally, they will come early in the day before it gets hot or later in the cool of the evening. So the fact that she comes by herself in the middle of the day to draw water says something about her relationship with her community, her relationship with the people with whom she lives in this town where it would have been a small town. Everybody would have known each other. She essentially does not want to be around them. She doesn't want them to be around her. 
And as Jesus interacts with her, our, our suspicions are confirmed. Um, Jesus says, call your husband and come here. And she says, no, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. So in other words, she doesn't have a good relationship with the people in her town. She doesn't have a good reputation with the people in her town. Something has gone wrong. We don't know the details of that. But she essentially is a kind of social outcast in her town, among her people. So she comes to draw water at the well. There's this personal moral barrier between Jesus and the woman. And yet, Jesus approaches her. Jesus asks for water from her and then engages her and has this conversation with her. So there is this critical point in the story. Up to the point where Jesus reveals that he knows that she's not had one husband, but she's had five husbands, and the person that she's now living with is not her husband. Up to that point, we have our suspicions about who this, this woman might be, her reputation, her background. But when Jesus reveals this, it's exposed, right? She could have had her secrets up to that point. But when Jesus says, this is who you are, there are no more secrets. Everything's laid out in the open in terms of her background, who she is, just out in the broad daylight, you could say. And that, I feel, is the critical turning point in the story. Because what happens in this story? What happens in conversation when you and I typically engage with somebody and something comes up about our past that uh, maybe we're not so proud of? Maybe we'd rather not talk about. We'd rather not have people know about. I know my natural response is, you know, I would rather skirt, skirt around the issue or maybe deflect the conversation or maybe I'll even disengage from the conversation and I won't want to talk about it. I won't want to even engage this person because they maybe know something about my past that I really prefer them not to. But what does the Samaritan woman do? Does she disengage? Does she deflect? Does she run away? Does she avoid the topic? No. She essentially says, I see that you are a prophet. So she's essentially admitting that what Jesus says about her is true. She acknowledges that this is her past. This is who she is. She doesn't deny it. She doesn't avoid it. And then she engages deeper and deeper in this conversation with Jesus. And instead, it becomes for her a way to go deeper and deeper about God, about worship, about Messiah. And eventually, Jesus reveals to her who he is. In fact, the passage that we read ends with Jesus saying, I am he, I am the Messiah that you have been waiting for, that your people and the Jewish people have been waiting for. And that's a really, really important point because this is the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus openly reveals, he says, I am 
the Messiah. This is the first time in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I am he, I am the Messiah. And this is the first time when there's such a positive response. We didn't read that part of the passage. Such a positive response to Jesus as a Messiah as this woman goes back to her town and says, could this really be the Messiah, this person who's told me everything about my life? And there's this huge response from the town. They all come to meet Jesus, and many people became believers in Jesus, it says in the text. So, why does the Gospel of John choose her, of all people, a Samaritan, a woman, to reveal to us, to us readers, that, that Jesus is the Messiah, and to, to show us this positive, positive, positive response uh, of, uh, of people around and to Jesus. Well, I think partly it has to do with authenticity. One of the key words in this passage is the word true or truth. So I just want to read chapter 4, verses 23-24 to you. And notice this emphasis on the word true. But the hour is coming, says Jesus, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Notice that emphasis on this idea, on this word of truth, of being true truthful. Let me read to you again our definition of authenticity. Being aware of our deep need of God, we seek to relate to God and to each other with honesty or truthfulness and humility. I think that is what this Samaritan woman is doing here as she engages Jesus she doesn't deflect or run away or disengage. She continues to engage with Jesus in honesty and truthfulness and humility. Now, this is one of the most important lessons I, I, I feel I've learned, perhaps the most important lesson, spiritual lesson I've learned in my life as, uh, as a Christian, as a believer. And I learned it after six years of being in ministry, so I felt called to pastoral ministry at New Life Chinese Lutheran Church. That was my first uh, calling, my first pastoral calling. After six years, I was on the verge of uh, burnout. So there was stress in my life on three major fronts. First, there was stress um, in my church. So there was a major church conflict going on that had been brewing for a number of months. I was not directly involved in it as a junior pastor, but I, I witnessed what was going on, and sometimes I'd be drawn into it, and even though I tried to, to mediate and tried to uh, make things better and to lead our way out of it, uh, my motives sometimes would be questioned. But just, the details are not important, but, but just witnessing that was a major, major source of stress for me. Second, there was stress on the home front. And so uh, by that time, my wife and I had been married for four years, and uh, we'd had our first son. He was about a year and a half 
uh, old uh, at that time. And so with a newborn, lots of adjustment, uh, lots of sleepless nights, and just trying to cope with all the different things that were now happening in our lives at that time. Lack of time, lack of communication, lack of sleep. Um, our marriage, it was difficult. It was really challenging at that time, I'll be honest with you. And so there's stress on the home front. But most importantly, there was stress internally, stress spiritually. And because I felt I was not coping with these external pressures, these external stresses in healthy ways. And I was going to, to different things and giving my heart to different things in ways that were not healthy. And so I felt that as a pastor, I was, I was preaching, I was speaking God's word, I was doing God's work uh, on the one hand externally, but then internally, I was not who I was presenting myself to be. And again, the details are not important, but what that created was this tension between who I really was and who other people saw me to be. I was not being truthful about myself. And so this created this deep, deep tension in my life and really resulted in this feeling of just being burned out, being um, at the end of my rope. And it was in that season of life that God led me to a ministry of, uh, called Living Waters, which is a healing and discipleship uh, ministry. I remember meeting the coordinator of the ministry. Um, they have this inter intake interview process in which they interview everyone, every candidate who, who, who approaches this ministry, um, just to see if they're a right fit. And I remember interviewing with the coordinator of the program, and uh, he asked me some very pointed questions about what I felt, why I felt uh, there's this need for me to enter in this program of healing and discipleship. And I shared some things. And then he asked us some more pointed questions, some more details. He wanted to, to really understand what I was going through. And so I started to share more details. I started to share about some of my failings, some of my failures, uh, some of my past, uh, my brokenness my temptations, the things that really were weighing on my heart. And I just shared and shared. And then when finally I, I stopped as if I, I had un, 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 relieved and unburdened myself of all these things, there was just silence in the room. And then he looked at me in the eye. I still remember that moment. And he said, thank you for the courage to share with me so openly, so honestly, about your past and about the things that you're struggling with. And then he prayed for me, and he prayed for me this prayer. He said, I pray, Lord, that Sam will know deep in his heart the forgiveness and grace that he already knows in his head. And I remember walking out of the office after that interview. I felt literally lighter or physically lighter, I could lift my head and, and, and feel as if God truly accepted me and loved me for who I was. I guess up to that point, I somehow felt as if, despite my calling, despite my ministry, despite who I was as a believer already, some of this stuff was so heavy that I couldn't really bring it to God. I couldn't bring it to other people, other brothers or sisters, and feel as if God truly accepted me. But in fact, it was when I was able to 
be authentic and truthful about this stuff, about my baggage, about my past, that then I was, be, I was able to understand who God's heart for me really was and how God really wanted to relate to me and understand more of his heart for me. Something like that, I think, is going on with this Samaritan woman. Jesus revealing to her about what he knows about her. Instead of disengaging, what does she do? She continues to engage with Jesus. She continues in that conversation with Jesus, not afraid. She presses on in courage until Jesus finally is able to reveal to her for the first time, according to the Gospel of John, that he is the Messiah. He is the king whom all of the Jewish people as well as the Samaritan people were waiting for. Now, the point becomes even more clear, as I said, when we think about how this story fits in with John chapter 3, which is the major story just preceding it. So that story is about Nicodemus. And if we compare the story of the woman of the, the Samaritan woman with the story of Nicodemus, they're complete opposite in terms of their social status. They're complete opposite in terms of who they are, who they represent as Jewish and Samaritan people. So Nicodemus is not just a Pharisee, but a ruler of the Jews. So he is one of the Sanhedrin. He is one of these people who is uh, a ruling member of uh, the Jewish people. And uh, in our day, you might think of someone who's really, really high in status. So maybe like someone who sits on the Supreme Court of Canada, right? Or maybe a professor of law at UBC. Someone who's got great prestige, great power, great knowledge, probably great wealth. This is what Nicodemus rep represents. Even Jesus calls him a teacher of Israel. But one of the main points of the story of Nicodemus in chapter 3 is the great irony, the irony of that story. Because despite Nicodemus being such a man of power and wealth and intelligence and reputation and relationship with others, despite all that, he still doesn't understand who Jesus is. In fact, Jesus, at one point in the story, he says, you must be born from above. But Nicodemus goes, what does that mean? You must be born again. Now, in the Greek, that word can be translated as from above or be born again. And actually, in our terminology, as evangelicals, we think we have to be born again Christians. Well, actually, Jesus is referring to not being born again, but being born from above. That is being born spiritually. But Nicodemus, he couldn't understand what Jesus is saying. Well, how can I be born physically again from my mother and go back to my, mother, mother, my mother's womb? And Jesus is saying, that's not it. You don't understand. How, how can you understand deeper things? And then Jesus refers to, he alludes to things of the cross, about his crucifixion, about the Son of Man being, being uh, raised. 
being lifted up on a cross. How can you understand those mysteries of life, that the Son of Man, the Messiah, has to be crucified if you can't even understand the fact that you need to be born from above, that you need to have a kind of a spiritual conversion of your heart. In other words, this guy who comes to Jesus and get it in, in the night, in the dead of night, rather than in the, in the light of day, as a Samaritan woman did, this man who has all the right credentials, all the right status, right reputation, he's smart, he's wealthy, he knows the right people. He could not understand. He could not fit who Jesus was into his categories. Let me tell you another story. And this is a story, again, a personal story, about when I finished uh, my, my uh, training at Regent College. So I went through four years in an MDiv at Regent College, and our church, New Life, was, was in, in the process of hiring a youth pastor at that time. And there was a candidate who had applied, and as a layperson, I was part of the process of interviewing this, this candidate. And I remember uh, I had just written this 3,000-word paper on my philosophy of ministry for the supervised ministry course at Regent College. And I came into uh, this evening interview with this candidate. It's part of the, kind of the final part of the uh, candidating process for him. And uh, I remember coming into the living room of the pastor where this was. And I'll call this man John. It's not his real name, but I just call him John. And I remember sitting kind of across from him, arms crossed on my stool, and I said, what, John, is your philosophy of ministry? And uh, he hadn't even started Regent yet. He was going to attend Regent that fall, and uh, he was just, he was coming from this background of a second career and feeling called to ministry. He was about 10 years older than me, and he hadn't started yet at Regent, but he wanted to get in touch with a church, a local church, and, and in ministry, and get active in ministry. That's why he applied to the youth ministry uh, position. And I don't even remember what his response was, but I do remember now how I made him feel you know, this seminary grad, you know, with an MDiv, asking him what is his philosophy of ministry, and he is just somebody applying for the youth ministry position, hadn't entered Regent College yet, and since then, we've become really, really good friends, so we joke about that, um, that meeting quite a bit. But I share that story because seven years later, um, in that season, when I entered in this very, very challenging time in my ministry, this brother, who continued on in ministry at New Life, he came and visited me. And I will remember that time because he truly, truly ministered to me in that season as I was able to share with him some of the things that were going on in my life and he he spent time with me, and he prayed for me, and he ministered to me. But I, could, I had no idea of the depth of this, uh, the spiritual depth of this brother, because I was just so much into uh, my own credentials, my own training, my background from Regent, my philosophy of ministry, right? I had no idea where he was coming from and his own experience and where he had met Jesus and his journey.
For the Samaritan woman, she is a nobody. No credentials to her name. In fact, she does not even have a name. Did you notice that? She doesn't even have a name in the Gospel of John. She's just a Samaritan woman. And yet, yet, she is the one who gets to know who Jesus is. She did not have Nicodemus' training or his credentials. She just has her own story and her own courageous ability to keep on pressing in to understand who Jesus, or to listen for what, who Jesus was. Here's the key for today. Transformation comes through truthfulness. Transformation comes through truthfulness, not through training or knowledge or status. Transformation comes through truthfulness and authenticity. Now, this is both good news and bad news for us, isn't it? It's good news when we can relate to this Samaritan woman. When we're kind of down and out, when we're kind of, you know, have our baggage out in front of people and uh, we know who we are, Jesus knows who we are, we know, who, we know that Jesus knows who we are, then we can relate to this Samaritan woman. And I feel like it's in those moments that we really can understand and appreciate who Jesus is for us, Right? But it's bad news for us when we begin to relate to Jesus like Nicodemus and we start to think about or maybe get wrapped up in our own status, we're wrapped up in our own gifting, in our own talents, in our own experience, in all the things that we've accomplished, in our own ministries perhaps. Then it actually becomes more difficult for us to understand who Jesus is for us. Now, uh, what I like about the Nicodemus story um, is that actually his, his journey is not finished. So I just want to flush that out for us a little bit because I think we all sometimes are like Nicodemus. And I want to encourage us to be more open and more truthful and more honest. And yet, the wonderful thing about Nicodemus is that his story is not completed here in chapter 3. So Nicodemus occurs, his story resurfaces two more times in the Gospel of John. So if you read the whole Gospel, you'll see Nicodemus popping up three times. Once in chapter 3, when he's totally confused about who Jesus is, and the story just ends with him being confused. There's no, there's no uh, hint whatsoever of some kind of understanding that dawning on Nicodemus. And then in John chapter 7, and again at the end of the Gospel in John chapter 19, so in seven, John chapter 7, verse 50, I'll read out to you. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, that is Jesus, and who was one of them, that is the Pharisees, said to the Pharisees, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So the Pharisees are in this discussion now about who Jesus is. Some of them want to pass judgment on him and essentially kill him. But Nicodemus now is saying, hold on a second. Do we pass judgment on him without actually giving him a hearing? So now the, the text is kind of showing us that Nicodemus is kind of, he has his two sides to him. And then at the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus had been crucified, 
Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, referring to that story in chapter 3, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 75 pounds of weight of this very, very precious material. And he buries Jesus. He's part of who, him and Joseph are the ones who take Jesus down from the cross and bury Jesus, give him a, a royal kingly burial. So this is showing some kind of a progression of Nicodemus' own journey. I love that because a lot of times we are kind of like Nicodemus, aren't we? But we can all have this kind of a journey with Jesus as we kind of continue to engage with him. And I think that's a hint. The author of the gospel is showing us that, G- that Nicodemus continues to have this journey with Jesus. His actions were speaking much louder than any words that he had said previously. And it gives us faith, uh, gives us hope for our faith journey. Now, I want to sh- change gears a little bit and talk about how are some, what are some of the practical ways that we can continue to engage with Jesus in truthfulness and authenticity um, in our lives. So here's this acronym, HALF. So this is partly what I picked up in this uh, Ministry of Living Waters, which was renamed as Journey Canada later on. Uh, HALF. So I think of it like, um, you can think of it like half. Our hearts are kind of half, half empty or half full until they're filled by Jesus. But one of the things I think that really helps us to engage with Jesus is to really to, is to understand what is going on in our own hearts. So this is just four feelings of desolation, or four words that can kind of help us, a kind of a grid for us to kind of uh, think about our lives. Where are we hurting? Where are we angry? Where are we lonely? Where are we fearful? So when you pray, think about these things, especially maybe, maybe perhaps for, for men, who tend to be a bit more cerebral and cognitive rather than emotional, I need to sometimes slow down and think about where it is the hurt in my life currently. Where am I upset or angry? Where, where am I feeling lonely? Where am I feeling fearful? Because as I become more aware of these things, then I'm able to bring them to Jesus. And I were to be honest with myself. Sometimes I think uh, we're just so busy, Right? that we're not even able to engage our own hearts and engage with who we are truly uh, to, to be able to bring that to, to the Lord. Um, and actually, since then, I've learned that actually this is really simple. It's maybe too simple. So here's a, a more complex one for some of you really uh, emotionally driven people or emotionally discerning people, I should say. So... The, the point is, the better you can name your feelings and what you're feeling, actually, what's actually going on in your heart, the better you understand yourself, the better you're able to bring that to the Lord, and the more freedom you will have as he interacts with you about that. So, yeah, angry, anxious, sad at the top, but all that list of different shades of these feelings of desolation, and then confident, happy, content, these feelings of consolation, of being encouraged or positive. Bring those to the Lord as well. 
In fact, I have on this app on my phone now, every uh, a few times a day, it'll kind of ring and say, you know, how are you feeling now? And it's a point of connection for me with the Lord because I go, yeah, okay, I slow down from what I'm doing. Yeah, what am I actually feeling? I can bring that to Jesus and let him speak to me in that space. A second way I'll share with you practically. Um, so one is being aware of our own needs. And a second one is as you come to the Lord, um, do so uh, with others. Do so with others. So one of the things that I've found really helpful in my journey is to have a few people, two or three people, that you can share openly with, that you, you feel safe with, and you can just share openly with about your struggles, about your positive as well as negative things. It doesn't have to be every day or every week even, but just a couple of people, a few people that you can be open with, completely open with, and just share and know that they can be Jesus to you. They can be that one who will accept you and maybe even challenge you like Jesus did to the Samaritan woman, right? You've not had one husband or five, and yet do so in a way that doesn't repel her away. A friend that you can trust, two or three. I was speaking with Terry earlier this week, and uh, I think they're part of this a DNA group uh, at Granville Chapel, and that's wonderful. I think just a few men getting together regularly to hear each other, support each other, encourage each other, go to scripture together. That's what I'm talking about. Hopefully, as, as we continue to, to live life together, these, these kind of groups, uh, these kind of relationships can be fostered among us, among men and women, where you kind of come together and just be honest and support one another. So I'll just leave you with those kind of two practical tools that I've uh, found really helpful in my life. And uh, I want to end here with uh, this kind of a visual picture. What's this? An onion, right? It's kind of old and fraying because it's been around my home for a while. But uh, what's an onion, you know, what's unique about an onion? The layers, right? The layers. So, I mean, like, the outside layers are really, really protective, aren't they? And they're hard and they prevent uh, bacteria and other kind of pests, uh, pests from getting into the inner layers of the onion. And it's actually... As you peel back those other layers, though, is actually what the onion is in itself as a vegetable. And I think our lives are often like that, aren't we? Like our lives are fairly complex. We as people, as disciples of Jesus, also are like this. We have these layers around us that often serve to protect us, these perhaps facades that serve to protect us. And maybe they're not dishonest, but they are just layers but peel back those layers. I think what Jesus, how do we create deeper intimacy with Jesus? I think he wants us to peel back those layers and beyond the superficial and go deeper and go deeper. What are we going through, really? Where are our hearts aches, really? And as we go deeper and deeper with ourselves, then we can go deeper and deeper with the Lord, and he can speak to us. Okay, let me, let me pray for us.
Father, I give you thanks again for this story, well, these stories of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman who doesn't even have a name, and yet she is the one who is revealed, who has revealed to her that you, Jesus, are the king of this world, the king of the Jews, the king of the Samaritans, the king of the Gentiles, the king of our church here. She is the one who first perceives it in the Gospel of John. Why? At least partially because she's not afraid of her own past, her own history, and yet she continues to engage with you, Jesus. Help us, give us that kind of courage, Lord, that uh, when things are not going well, when, when maybe things surface from our lives, in our lives that uh, we may be afraid of, give us courage to keep on pressing in, knowing that Jesus is one who will not condemn us for that, but really he wants to give us, give us freedom from that as we are true to ourselves. Lord, uh, you know each person here and the things that are in our lives, that are on our hearts, and you are the one who can be that perfect, that perfect person who will accept us for who we are and yet also not leave us where we are. And so we want to entrust ourselves to you. We want to entrust our hearts to you. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the tenth or hundredth time, and give us an ability to keep on pressing in in terms of our own journey, whether we're at the beginning, in the middle, or towards the end of our discipleship and our following of Jesus. Lord, give us strength and give us courage. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>